So today is the 25th of August, 2021. We've come together to chant and train our minds, and practice the recollection of the Buddha. So we've chanted the homage to the Buddha relics, beginning with itipiso visesehi. This is paying uh, respect, paying homage to the Buddha making that the object of our mind. And when we chant and recollect the Buddha in this way, when we become proficient in it, then we can have uh, nimittas or clear mental visions arise in the mind. There was one occasion when a clear vision of the Buddha arose and there were eight, eight or nine Buddhas around the head and this is, and uh, oneself is a child of the Buddha. And so this is a, a vision that arose. And this is uh, arising from the recollection of the Buddha as one's meditation object. So the recollection of the Buddha, it's an important meditation object. We have faith in the Buddha and recollect that the Buddha had the wisdom to win over the defilements of the mind uh, on his own. And there was no one else in the three worlds able to do this. No one else had the capability, had the wisdom to be able to win over the kilesas like this. Because succeeding over ignorance, over awija, something that's really not easy to do, if it wasn't the rightly self-awakened Buddha, there's no one else who'd be able to know this for themselves. And the enlightened disciples who came after the Buddha, they needed the Buddha to be the first one to know this and the one to teach and lay down uh, the Dhamma for them to see after the Buddha. So we cultivate this practice of recollecting the Buddha we can chant the itipiso, we say, say, he chant 108 times, or the itipiso bhagava chant 108 times. Whatever chant we like, we chant that one a lot. This is the recollection of the Buddha, where we recollect the noble and virtuous qualities of the Buddha. And when we do this, rapture and joy can arise easily in our hearts. When we're at a fearful place, for instance, we must meditate like this a lot to bring our mind to peace and collectedness to the point where we have no fear. Because if we have a lot of fear and a lot of worry, then our heart is in suffering. So nowadays people are having a fear and caution uh, in the world a lot because the world is in a difficult situation. And so a lot of fear is arising, which makes uh, the suffering even more. So we must train our hearts and minds, but also we train to not be heedless either, but to be heedful. Because if we try to be free from fear and just be heedless in our lives, this uh, we can't be like that. So we have to be have a lot of carefulness as well. 
So sometimes even when one is uh, very careful due to one's karma, one still gets sick. Um, even if one takes all the appropriate precautions and does everything in a careful way, but one still gets sick anyway, then this is about one's karma. There, and there are some cases where some people are very close to one who has the COVID virus, but they don't get the virus themselves. Like a child having the virus and their mother takes care of them, but the mother doesn't get the virus. Or a mother gets sick and the child takes care of the mother and the child doesn't get the virus. So this is related to karma. But either way, don't be heedless. And when we contemplate more deeply, we see that in truth, no one else makes us sick. The cause of sickness is having a physical body, is having a body. We have birth, and because there's birth, there's old age, there's sickness, and there's death. We can look at the world a hundred years ago, five hundred years ago, or back uh, in the Buddha's time, 2,564 years ago, the year of the Buddha's Parinibbana, people were much fewer than they are now. There are uh, not as many people in the world. And there's also less scientific development, less uh, technological and material development. So they had uh, fewer medicines. They're not the same medicines as we have today. And so people got sick and people died a lot from things like pandemics or epidemics. So we've read this in the texts and the suttas. We see that people in those days, they would have various uh, outbreaks of different diseases and it would be uh, severe to the point where whatever path by which they came, they would come back on a different path and they would uh, burn things and avoid things that they thought had uh, pathogens on them. For instance, a house where people had the, uh, the disease, they would even burn the wooden walls of the house because they would be afraid that the wood would still have um, a pathogen on it so they couldn't use that wood anymore or things like uh, clothing or human waste could spread disease like uh, cholera, for instance, or different types of plagues. And also uh, human bodies themselves would spread disease as well. So people were cautious to a great degree. Uh, they were cautious to a great degree. So in the present time, we have an illness outbreak all the same. We have a pandemic and there's no sure medicine to uh, prevent or care for this disease. So in the present time, all uh, countries all over the world are dealing with this new disease. And the disease itself is new as well. So we contemplate in the Buddha's time, they had disease outbreaks, but they didn't have uh, modern medicine like there is nowadays to help with it. But what they did have was the Buddha and many, many arahants, fully awakened beings. 
in the present time, there's uh, many diseases that have uh, lost to modern science. Various medicines and technologies have been able to help with many diseases. But we see that we still have disease. There's still um, a lot of illnesses and diseases around the world. And in fact, it's even more so than before because there's more people. There's many more people and there's more travel. There's more communication. In the past, people would travel by foot or by boat or by horse-drawn carriage uh, or by horse and so on. So to go from Thailand to Australia or to the United States or to Brazil or to India, for instance, these journeys would take a very long time. If a bacteria arose in India, then it would take a very long time for that illness to reach Thailand. And sometimes by the time that disease was traveling on its way to Thailand, it would be gone before it reached Thailand. But nowadays travel is much faster. From India to Thailand, it's only a matter of hours before one could reach Thailand. So therefore bacteria spreads uh, very easily, very quickly. So nowadays there's a lot of material development, technology, technological development, but sicknesses, diseases have de developed quickly as well. So we should contemplate all of this as normal and natural. It's not strange or out of place, but degradation is like this. We contemplate this as normal. Getting old, getting sick, it's normal. And we practice to be careful, to not be heedless. And in our Dhamma practice, to make our hearts uh, not heedless and to be heedful, then uh, what do we do? What do we do to cultivate this quality of heedfulness and to abandon heedlessness? Well, the Buddha taught us to have mindfulness, that those that are heedless are as if dead already. We can recollect the bhikkhuni, the great elder Patachara, who was an arahant, a fully awakened being. She listened to the Dhamma of the Lord Buddha just once, and she realized stream entry, the first level of awakening. And she had undergone great suffering, losing both her children, her parents, her husband, her brother, all of her family. Even on a single day, she lost them all. And due to this great loss, um, her mindfulness was gone, and she was uh, like a crazy person. She wasn't actually crazy, but she was as if uh, crazy. So the Buddha called her over, and her mindfulness was regained at that moment. And this is due to the merit and spiritual parami that she had cultivated in the past. And she had cultivated a lot of parami and merit in the past. So she listened to the Dhamma at this point. I was able to understand it. So when I read this in the text, I was very impressed. 
And the Buddha taught that the tears that we cry uh, when we've been sad from the separation from the loved, that all this uh, sadness we've experienced in the world from separation from the loved, we've cried more tears than there is water in all the great oceans of the world. So this is something really worth thinking about that all the tears that have fell from our eyes in this long course of samsara is more than all the great oceans. It's a, a very great amount, an incredible amount, a lot of sadness, a lot of suffering. And for the great elder Bhikkhuni Padachara, she realized arahanship and therefore it was her last life. She contemplated that life is like this, uh, birth is like this. Some beings die while still in the womb. Some, having been born, die as young children. Some die as uh, adolescents. Some die as middle-aged people. Some die as older people. So we see that life is uncertain. So she realized arahanship, full awakening, and she saw this uncertainty very clearly. She saw that all conditioned things are just this way. She contemplated this well and saw clearly into the Dhamma. And this separation from the loved, it's something that's not easy. And it's something that we've all chanted, whether monks or laity, we've all chanted this already. So we should bring this into our hearts to contemplate this as Dhamma, to contemplate, to give rise to Dhamma in our hearts. We think of it, we contemplate it, we give rise to wisdom, to contemplate and seek out the causes, to understand the results. We use our reasoning, we seek out the reasons, and this is one degree of wisdom, one type of wisdom. We chant and we listen to the chanting, we contemplate to bring the meaning uh, into our hearts, to make the meaning clear. When the mind is peaceful, then we can see uh, clearly. And we don't necessarily know to what level our samadhi is at. And there's one story that I've often told where one, I would contemplate, or I contemplated a person who had died already. One could see their eyes and their head opened up during the autopsy, and they see their brain come out and their organs, uh, all the big and small organs removed and weighed and so on, like the large intestine, the small intestine, the stomach, the spleen, the liver, the kidneys, the heart, the lungs, one could even see the uh, digested food and the undigested food within their stomach and intestines as well. And one can reflect that well, some people like noodles, some people like noodles of one type or another, or like different dishes. And when it enters the body and gets uh, digested, it, it all becomes the same in the end and gets uh, separated out to make into the different body parts. 
So we contemplate, it's like this. When we are alive, we feel like, oh, it's a, this is a me, it's a mind. This body is a self, it's something very valuable. But during the autopsy, they take out the brain and when they sew the body back up, they put the brain not back into the skull, but they put the brain in the stomach, mixed, all jumbled up, all with the other organs at the end of the autopsy. So I saw this and contemplated that these lives of ours, when there's uh, no breath left after death, uh, people just do anything to the corpse and the body doesn't even know about it. There's no breath, there's no fire element. The water element uh, degrades according to its nature and the whole body uh, degrades and decomposes like this. And the body being autopsy doesn't know about any of this, doesn't think about it or know about it. So we see that the body has no value or use at this point. It's like a log uh, discarded in the forest has no value, no use at all. So this can bring up a great feeling of uh, weariness in the world, a desire to escape from the world, feeling of dispassion, uh, this quality of sangwega uh, to a great degree in the heart. And this quality of sangwega can bring the mind to unification, to stillness, seeing that all life must end in death. We don't know when we will die. Even in the stomach, you can see that there are individual rice grains, the food wasn't even digested. So this individual who, who died, he wasn't thinking that he would die that morning. He was thinking he would still be alive and ate his meal as usual. So we contemplate this and this feeling of weariness and wishing to escape from danger arises in the heart. The mind becomes still and peaceful. So we cultivate the meditation, the recollection of the Buddha. We chant in praise of the Buddha. We can also cultivate the practice of uh, death recollection or mindfulness of the breath. These are all ways to make the mind peaceful. We can also contemplate cause and effect, to seek, seek to understand cause and effect, uh, to bring our minds to stillness. Whatever the, the method, we must bring our minds to stillness to be free from proliferation. And at this point, we have mindfulness to know this quality of stillness. We know that the mind is still. There's fullness and joy arising in the heart. And this uh, dispassion, weariness of the world in the heart as well. Then at some point later, the mind starts to proliferate again on its own. And I contemplated, uh, or the, th the proliferation arose that, oh, this is a person, this is this type of person or that type of person. But deep in the mind, the mind hadn't yet uh, started grab grabbing onto this proliferation. The mind was still uh, still as these thoughts arose. And at this point, I wasn't intent to contemplate impermanence, suffering or not self. 
the mind was just still. So this knowing arose, knowing that proliferation was beginning to happen in the mind. And this wasn't a thought, it was a direct knowing. It was a direct knowing. This knowing of not self, that really there's no one here, there's no one there. There's no one there at all. There's no one there at all. And it's not a policeman, it's not this or that type of person, it's not a male, it's not a female, it's not an adult, it's not a child. The mind is still. And so the mind could see that when proliferation arose, this is the arising of convention, of samuti. This is knowledge arising, wisdom arising, coming directly from meditation practice, coming from samadhi. So we start by cultivating generosity. We use our the energy or strength of our wealth, of our body, of our uh, intellectual capability, and we uh, give or generous. This helps to reduce the sense of self. Then we undertake the practice of virtue, of sila. Because we see that in this world, people that want the wealth of others and act on this just leads to uh, chaos and trouble. Some people obtain wealth in an incorrect way or steal it from others, and then they may wish to share that wealth. But this wealth was obtained wrongly, and it's hurt other people. And then one hurts oneself as well, uh, due to this selfishness. So one with the quality of generosity, with the quality of giving, doesn't steal from others. So this is one benefit from generosity, which is an important benefit. And the Buddha taught that a benefit of generosity is that one has uh, everything one needs, one's complete in all things. And if we don't reach uh, Nibbana right away, then the quality or the acts of generosity become like provisions on our journey to Nibbana, become supplies for our journey. Such as the example of Venerable Siwali, uh, foremost in receiving gains among the monastics. And we recollect that virtue, sila, gives even more benefit than generosity, whether we practice the five precepts or the eight precepts. Some people practice generosity a lot, but they find that practicing virtue is quite difficult. And some people have uh, the five precepts well established and become motivated to do the eight precepts and meditate even more. So this is making even more parami, even more spiritual virtue. Because in order to know and see the Dhamma, all the causes and conditions need to be ready. And when the Buddha taught Venerable Yasa, the Buddha gave a graduated discourse speaking to the benefits of generosity, speaking on virtue, the benefits of virtue, and saying that the benefits of virtue are this uh, happiness and collectedness of mind, and it's a noble wealth in the heart, 
It's the best type of wealth. So we see that individuals without generosity, without virtue, they may have a lot of wealth, have everything they need, but still they harm others and destroy the wealth of others. They may harm the lives of animals, harm the lives of other people, and then they die. So they hurt others and they hurt themselves, and all they get is heat and agitation. They may have power and have wealth, but then it's all gone in the end. And what they end up with is the result of hurting themselves and others. So we see that the benefit of sila, of virtue, is happiness. It's a mind of loving kindness and compassion. And we get uh, more and more happiness in that, in this way. We chant recollecting the Buddha, praising the Buddha. And we recollect that the Buddha cultivated this loving kindness to a great degree. The Buddha had these great qualities of wisdom, purity, and great compassion, great loving kindness. Had a, has a mind of incredible loving kindness for all beings. So therefore we practice to follow the teachings of the Buddha, to cultivate loving kindness ourselves. We practice this path of generosity, virtue, and meditation to give rise to clear knowing in our own hearts, to see that in reality there's no self, there's no me, no mine, no you or yours. And we know clearly to see that everything arises and ceases. And this clear seeing is something that's really amazing. It's a great miracle. When we see this clearly, we feel the Dhamma very deeply in our hearts. We can feel great rapture and bliss in the Dhamma for one day, three days, or even uh, more days than that. It just depends on our spiritual virtues, our parami. Before we saw people as real individuals, then we just see them as robots, as automatons. And this is taught in the Satipatthana Sutta, the great discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, that there's no self to be found in the body or mind. And we say, well, well, how is this? Well, it's when we don't have wisdom, we see everything in terms of self. Everything's a me or a you, a mine or a yours. So we see things in terms of self all the time when we lack wisdom. But when we see clearly, we see that, oh, there's really no self there to be found. There's no me, mine, you or yours. We see people just like uh, robots. There's no self there at all. It's just like a artificial intelligence. So if we saw an actual robot, we wouldn't think that it has a self or individual existence. So we see that it's just the same as this. So we practice to know this for ourselves, to know this quality of not self, not me or mine, not you or yours, to see this, that things are just as they are, to understand this clearly. The mind gathers together, sees everything as empty. This is the arising of uh, 
the vipassana jnana, the vipassana knowledges, which are of, are of nine types. So we may have read about these in the texts, and these vipassana knowledges arise from meditation practice. One doesn't intend for them to happen, but they arise on their own. One sees everything arising and ceasing. One sees that the whole world is on fire. It's as if we're all caught in a house on fire. We feel that we must escape from that house and that the whole world is like this. And we wish to help others escape from the fire as well. But others don't see the fire. They don't see the fire as hot at all. They don't see old age, sickness, or death. But when this clear knowing arises, then one seeks for a way out of the fire. This is the arising of wisdom in our hearts. And if one just looks on the external level, one won't see that someone is feeling this way. One won't see it because it's a quality inside the heart. In the present time, we may see this even more clearly, that the house is on fire, the world is on fire. One could imagine that there's a house, and the house is filled with people, and every single one of them has the COVID virus, and one doesn't have any uh, protective gear or anything to protect oneself, no mask. And you could ask, well, would you go into that house? There's no protection and the people in there aren't your relatives or any, or uh, close ones. So if you were in that house, you would seek a way out of it. So this is an example. So this clear knowing arises. One sees that all conditioned formations, all materiality and mentality are uh, very fearful. They don't last long at all. And one sees the danger in this and contemplates like this. And again, amongst these nine vipassana knowledges, it's also seeing the body as not beautiful, something that's not attractive, which is um, uh, dirty by nature. When we take care of the body and wash it and give it uh, sense and so on, we see it as something good. But if we don't wash it or clean it or change the clothing, then in no long time it feels uh, dirty and smelly and so on. For instance, clothing needs to be washed or else it gets smelly or dirty. And this is because the clothing touches the skin. So we have uh, these lives and we use our bodies and we see that when the body doesn't have a breath anymore, then we don't even need to talk about how unattractive or not beautiful it is at that point. Uh, no one wants the body at that point. Particularly when someone dies with the COVID virus, uh, no one wants that body anymore. They simply burn the body. They don't keep it around because they're scared of the virus. Uh, sometimes people don't even look at the face of the corpse after death. Uh, they don't hold the hand of the corpse because the body is the home of disease uh, in truth. 
So one knows and uh, sees this clearly. So may you really set your hearts on this practice of virtue, collectedness, and wisdom to know uh, clearly for oneself. And it's something that, again, one isn't intending to know. One doesn't set one's heart to know it, but the knowing arises on its own. Uh, this wisdom arises on its own. We see that the Dhamma gives fruit not limited to time. That Dhamma gives result not according to time. And when the Dhamma gives uh, fruit, rapture, bliss, and happiness arise in the heart. One sees the Buddha in one's own heart. One sees the great loving kindness and compassion of the Buddha. And this is a great uh, wealth arising in the heart. So on this path to Nibbana, we cultivate virtue, which is, uh, the Buddha taught, is the greatest wealth. We practice the five precepts, the eight precepts, the ten precepts, or the 227 precepts. And these are all skillful means uh, to reach Nibbana. So may you set your hearts on this practice. Myself and the Sangha rejoice in all the goodness of all those who help to care for the Sangha, who help to uh, buy and prepare the food that uh, the Sangha eats and provides the four requisites of clothing, shelter, medicine, and food. And even back to the very beginning of the monastery, those that helped build the monastery, we animated now with them as well. So, May all of you here, may you realize uh, happiness. You've already built a lot of parami already. And uh, some of those that have practiced here and built parami here, we may be separated from them already according to causes and conditions. And if they're a deva, if they're a heavenly being already, may they rejoice and gain these merits and have even more happiness, have happiness uh, to a higher and higher degree in the deva world. And may their suffering uh, reduce, uh, always reduce as well. So by the parami of the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, may all, you, may all Dhamma practitioners, may all of you grow in the Dhamma and see the Dhamma.